And we're going to be looking at our holy God and uh, what makes him so uh, set apart from us, so different from us, so worthy to be worshipped, so worthy to be trusted. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to be looking at probably one of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament, a verse that I would imagine uh, many of you have memorized. Uh, You may even have a a, a picture uh, of this verse in your home. Uh, You might have a little figurine with this verse uh, uh, on it on your desk at work. Um, You might have a magnet of it on your refrigerator. Uh, This is one of those uh, most often quoted verses. It's a beloved verse um, by many, many Christians. And uh, it has brought comfort and encouragement and hope uh, to, to many of us throughout the generations. Um, obviously, I'm referring to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. While many Christians know that verse, uh, I don't know if many Christians know the context of that verse. And while we can be encouraged on a superficial level uh, by a verse like this, uh, when we understand it in its context, it, it, it really uh, can provide us even more comfort, uh, a, a de- with a depth of comfort that God originally intended uh, for a verse like this to, to give uh, his people. And so I want to see this verse, uh, Isaiah 40, 31, in its context uh, this, this morning. And, uh, and so... Um, this is a verse that uh, I guess whenever um, I run, which I hate to do, but uh, I've been trying to do a little bit more of that these days, and especially when you go on vacation in Washington, it may invite you just to come outside and enjoy the cool weather and uh, the hiking and the mountains, and uh, there's lots of places to enjoy out, out the outdoors and to exercise, and, and, uh, and so I was uh, meditating on this verse as I was uh, doing some hill climbing, uh, there's lots of hills there to climb and to run, and, and uh, it seems whenever, whenever I'm uh, sucking wind and, and thinking, why am I doing this? I hate to do this, and I can't take another step, and just trying to push yourself a little bit further uh, as, you, as you exercise. Um, th- this verse comes to mind. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will not walk and not become weary. And while I hate to run, I love to run because... I think it's a tremendous uh, analogy of our Christian life. And I've always felt that way. Um, that, uh, and sometimes I just run to, to remind myself, uh, oh yeah, this is what the Christian life is like. It's hard. It's not fun. Um, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes you just want to stop and quit and not go any further. But uh, you got to just keep hanging in there. And, and mainly, it's mental. Uh, your body may feel a certain way, but you can push your body beyond certain limitations if you are focused mentally. And uh, there's times I'll show up at, at workout in the morning with Aaron and I'll look at his little workout of the day and I go, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to do that. And, and then I realize throughout the workout, it's all mental. You just got to focus and, and get your mind uh, to, to focus on the right things, and, and typically you can push through it and, and do it. And so uh, this is really uh, all about what, what should be going on in our minds and our hearts as, as believers as we 
run the race with endurance. And that's what God has called us to do throughout the scriptures is, is that the, the, the Christian life is not a, a sprint. It's a marathon. And, uh, and so we can draw great encouragement and hope from this verse. But let me just read it for you uh, again in its context and, and in its immediate context. And then after I pray, we'll look at it in, in its overall context. But let's look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Father, we thank you for these special verses uh, in your word that you put here and preserved here for our encouragement, for our hope, And Lord, forgive us for so often ripping these precious texts out of their context and and not really fully understanding and appreciating what you were saying here uh, to the people of Israel in the book of Isaiah. And I pray that as we consider that this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged, uh, that we would be given comfort and hope from your spirit through your word, and that you would uh, take us to a new level in regards to what it really means to wait upon you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, life here on earth is utterly exhausting. It's full of all sorts of difficulties and demands and problems and pressures that constantly weigh on us and wear us out. Uh, We're no match in and of ourselves for the relentless trials and challenges and adversities that we all face in life. And that's one reason why we have to go to bed every night. Have you ever thought about that? Well, why is it that around 9, 10, 11 o'clock, I'm just exhausted and I'm looking for my bed. I got to lay down. And there is no one on this planet who can live without rest, without sleep. And those who try usually end up hurting themselves or suffering the consequences and and dying an early death because we we can't go without rest. And why is that? Because we're frail. We're fragile. We are faint-hearted. We are finite creatures. The Bible says we're but what? Dust. We talked about this Uh, a few weeks ago that we're just a bunch of dirt banks, right? Uh, When it comes to understanding how God created us from the dust. And so we grow weary, we grow tired, we get easily overwhelmed by our circumstances. We become fearful and anxious and we let our problems get us down. We get discouraged, we get depressed, we, we become despondent, we sometimes lose heart and we give up hope. And that's typically because we have a hard time making sense of the trials and the adversities that we experience. We, we can't square our suffering with a God who claims to be wise and loving 
and sovereign over all things. We're tempted at times to doubt that God really knows what, what's going on in our lives or, or worse, we, we doubt that he even cares. And at times we feel sorry for ourselves and think things like, well, if God really loves me, then why am I going through this? If he's really in control, then why did he let this happen? Maybe, maybe, maybe God's so busy running the universe that I've escaped his notice. Perhaps he really isn't in control after all. And this is when you know you've lost perspective. When you start to think wrong thoughts about God and question what he's told us about himself in his word. And, and we all lose perspective at times. It happens to even the most mature saints. It, one of my favorite stories, and it seems like I've been telling this story often, but I just love this uh, example of Martin Luther and his wife, uh, Catherine von Bora. And uh, you might remember the story that during a difficult uh, period in Luther's life and ministry, he was carrying many burdens and, and fighting many battles, and he was usually a very happy, uh, smiling kind of a personality, but he was overwhelmed with anxiety, and he'd become very depressed, which um, Catherine graciously endured for days. And eventually, however, she got fed up with his, his uncharacteristic demeanor, and so one morning, she came to breakfast wearing a black dress like she was on her way to a funeral. And Luther was surprised because he hadn't heard about a funeral. And so he said, who died? And she said, God did. And he responded to his wife, you're foolish, woman. What, what, what are you talking about? And she said, it's true. God must have died or you would not be so sad and depressed. Well, her unorthodox therapy worked. And Luther uh, snapped out of this despondent state that he was in. And uh, I, I, I tell that story again, uh, again, just to remind us that we're, we're all guilty at times, aren't we? Of losing perspective in the midst of life's pressures and problems. And when, when we lose perspective, what actually is happening is we've lost sight of God. We've lost sight of God. And so the key to regaining a proper perspective when the trials and the circumstances of life have got us down or have worn us out is refocusing on God. In fact, look at Isaiah verse, chapter 40, verse 9. And this is, the, I think, the, the key to this whole chapter. Isaiah says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. I like the ESV or the King James Version. It just simply says, behold your God. In other words, look at your God. Here is your God. In other words, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off your problems and your difficulties and your circumstances and look at God and all of his power and all of his majesty. Someone has defined circumstances as those nasty things you see when you get your eyes off God. Warren Wiersbe comments, if you look at God through your circumstances, he will seem very small and very far away. But if you, in faith, look at your circumstances through God, he will draw very near and reveal his greatness to you. 
So it's all in our perspective, isn't it? When we, when we truly see God's greatness or his bigness, then our circumstances won't seem so great. No matter how big the problems are that we're facing, God is bigger. If you've got a small God, you've got big problems. And if you've got a big God, you've got small problems. People who, who have a lofty view of God, a high view of God, and keep him in focus at all times have a, have a confidence. They have a resilience about them. Nothing much seems to get them down. It's like they, they live above the problems and the pressures of life. They seem so energetic. They seem buoyant, and they rarely talk about how tired they are or, or, or how down they are. It's like they've, they've tapped into a perpetual power source that continually renews and re- replenishes their strength. The, the question we should ask ourselves is, what is their secret? I, I want to I be like that, and what's your secret? Well, Isaiah tells us the secret in this passage. Now, again, we need to understand the historical context here of not just this text, but the entire book of Isaiah. Isaiah was originally written to the nation of Judah to condemn their rebellion against God, their sin against God, and pronounce God's judgment on them through the coming Babylonian exile. At the same time, however, it was written to console and to to comfort them with a message of future salvation and and, and restoration through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so this book nicely breaks down into two sections. Uh, Chapters 1 through 39 are all about condemnation. And chapters 40 to 66 are all about consolation. So the dominant theme of the first part of the book, uh, verses or chapters 1 through 39, is judgment. And the dominant theme of chapter 40 to, to chapter 66 is, is comfort. In fact, the, the word comfort or comforted or comforts occurs 13 times uh, in, in chapters 40 through chapter 66. And so we need to understand, first of all, that this this passage, this verse that we love so much and have to the point where we we, we cut it out of the Bible and put it on posters and, you know, wall decorations and put them on our desk and it's in the context of comfort, comfort. In fact, notice the very first verse of chapter 40. This is the transitional verse. The hinge on which this book turns, comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. And he goes on to talk about the comfort that we should have uh, in God and, uh, and, and particularly in the coming of the Messiah. Notice we see in verse 3, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. This is what uh, John the Baptist quoted as he prepared the way for Christ. Notice it says in verse 10, Behold, the Lord your God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Talking about the coming of the Lord like a shepherd, he will tend his flock and his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here. And then he goes on in the remaining verses of of this chapter 40, to, to show how comfort 
was to be found primarily in the incomparable greatness of God. And, and it's really through a series of these rhetorical questions, Isaiah highlights the majesty and the glory of God, which he brings to bear on the despondency of God's people. And again, just, just to give you a flavor of this, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the spans uh, off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Again, he's, he's, he's describing the greatness of God, the bigness of God, that all the waters of the earth could fit in the palm of his hand. That's how big he is. All the mountains of the earth could, could put, 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 in, put in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or, or his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? In other words, he's incomparable. He describes the, the idols of men and how they cut down a tree and, and then they worship it. And, 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 and uh, verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars and the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. And so what is, God, what is Isaiah doing here? He's reassuring them that, that God will supply them the strength to endure the trials that they're about, about to face and, and sustain them during the long, hard road that they had ahead of them in, in Babylon, Babylonian captivity. Again, in the first half of the book, Isaiah warned Judah that that as punishment for their sinful rebellion, that God was going to bring the nation of Babylon against them to besiege them and take them into exile. And now here in the second half of the book, he provides comfort and hope for those who would be in captivity for some 70 years. And so he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? He's repeating that same line again. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, doesn't, he doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. See, God knew that during the Babylonian exile, the Jews would naturally question his concern for them and his control over the situation. And, and so he told Isaiah to prophesy to this faithful remnant who would, who, who would be physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted 
After 70 years of, of being in captivity and battling discouragement and despair and feeling forgotten, even abandoned by God and possibly wanting to quit and throw in the towel. And he essentially tells them to, to get their eyes off their problems and onto the omniscient, omnipotent God of heaven and earth who knows and who cares and promises to renew and replenish the physical and spiritual energy and power of all those who rely on him. And so it's no surprise that, that God's people for centuries have turned to this passage to find comfort and to find strength, to uplift them, to sustain them amidst the, the difficult, draining trials that God ordains for all of our lives. You may have already noted this as we've read this, these four or five verses, 27 to 31, a couple of times now. Uh, there's some words that are repeated more than any other words. The words weary and tired are mentioned seven times in these five verses. Obviously, that is the emphasis of this passage, along with the word strength, might, power, used four times in this passage. So what was Isaiah doing? He was making an obvious contrast between our weakness and God's strength. Unlike us who get so quickly and easily exhausted, God is inexhaustible. He offers an inexhaustible supply of energy and strength to exhausted people who wait, who hope, who trust in him. And that, by the way, is the secret. I'm not gonna, you don't need to wait for some reveal here some, at some point in the sermon. That's the secret. Verse 31, yet those who wait for the Lord, you may want to underline that, bracket that phrase, wait for the Lord. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment, but this, this is the secret, not just to spiritual renewal, but it's the secret to spiritual survival. And I think the point here, if I was just to summarize what Isaiah was saying or what God was saying, the Spirit of God was saying through Isaiah, is that frail, fragile, faint-hearted, finite creatures like you, like me, will not and cannot live and minister effectively without being regularly infused with God's limitless power and strength. And so the question is, how do you plug into that strength? How do you plug into that power source? Well, let's look a little closer at this passage and we'll find out, find the answer to that question. Notice again, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? And so here we have Judah complaining that God apparently didn't know the difficulties they were facing or he wasn't doing anything to deliver them. And so the language here suggests that the people of Judah had brought God down to their level, saying, my, my way is hidden from the Lord. Obviously, he doesn't see what's going on and the justice due me escapes the notice of God. In other words, he's not able to do anything. He, he, even if he knows it's un, unjust how I'm being treated or what I'm experiencing, he's not doing anything about it. 
And they were assuming that God was just like them, that, that there were certain things that he didn't know, that escaped his notice, or that, that he couldn't do anything about, that he lacked the ability to come to the aid. His hands were tied, if you will. And this is where we go terribly wrong when we assume that God is like us. Psalm 50, verse 21, God chided the wicked saying, you thought that I was just like you, I'll reprove you. Martin Luther um, scolded one of the heretics of the day that he was debating with and said this in a letter to Erasmus. He said, your thoughts of God are too human. And that's our problem. Our, Our thoughts of God are oftentimes too human. We think of God in human terms with human limitations. Why? Because we can only be at one place at one time. There's only so much we can do. We're only one person. We only have so much time and so much energy. Well, guess what? None of these things apply to God. He's everywhere at the same time. He's able to do anything. He's not constrained by time or an insufficient supply of energy. He's God. And so that's exactly why Isaiah reminded them of what they had forgotten about God to show them the the ridiculousness of their fear, their anxiety, their despondency. Notice in verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? Again, he's repeating himself. He said that back in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Hey, haven't, haven't you known these things from the beginning about God? And so he lists some of the things that the Bible says regarding who God is and what he can do in the next few verses here. And and I think these are truths that we must never forget in the midst of of difficult circumstances because if we do, we'll lose perspective, we'll become discouraged, we'll become defeated and we'll wanna quit. We'll just say, this is too hard, I'm done. What what are these truths? And and we don't really have a, uh, I don't have a alliterated outline or anything this morning for you, but just simply a list of six truths about God that we know. And we've heard. You, you know these things. You've heard these things. You're not going to hear anything new this morning that you haven't heard before. You're not going to walk away with any new knowledge about something about God. Oh, wow, I didn't know that about you. You already know these things. Do you not know? Have you not heard? In other words, can I just remind you of what you already know, of what you've already heard? Number one, that God loves us and is faithful to keep his promises to us. God loves us and is faithful to keep his promises to us. And I think that's inherent in what he says in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? These were enduring terms here. He didn't call them Judah. He didn't say, why do you say, O Judah? He said, no, he called them, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel. These were endearing terms that was intended to remind them of the covenant that God had made with their forefather, Jacob, who was given a new name, the name what? Israel. And here was the 
the father of the nation who had wrestled with God and nevertheless, God chose to bless him. And so I think this was a, a, the way, a way for Isaiah to remind these people that they had a special place in God's heart, that they were his dearly beloved people of promise, that he had made promises to them, that he had, 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 had every intention of fulfilling and that absolutely nothing could stop him from fulfilling them, even spending 70 years in captivity in an enemy nation. And so never forget that you're loved. Even when you're feeling like God has forgotten you or abandoned you. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, said something very insightful. He said, by what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God, the scripture doth witness. In other words, the, the, the Bible tells us how Satan drew mankind away from God and led them to disobey God. This is what he says. By pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. That's a poisonous thought. And essentially, that's what Satan put in the mind and heart of Eve and Adam, right? When he said, well, did God say you could eat of all that? Well, we can eat of, of everything but this. Or we'll die. Well, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. That's why he told you not to eat that. If he really loved you, he would have given you the freedom to eat everything. But he's holding out on you. And so he planted that seed of that poisonous thought that God, you know what? Yeah, that's, God really probably doesn't love us. And I think Satan is continuing to try to poison our hearts and make us either forget or to doubt God's love for us. If God really loved me, then he would have or he wouldn't have, right? We, we think those thoughts. And that's when we need to go back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, a great reminder of how loved we are. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. And then you could add in there whatever you're going through right now in your life. will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most comforting thoughts that should go through our minds every morning when we wake up, that we are loved by God, that God loves us. And no matter what happens that day, it doesn't change the fact that we are loved by God. And that's where we should find our ultimate hope, our ultimate comfort, that I am beloved. And that whatever is happening to me is an act of love from this great God who loves me. So God loves us and is faithful to keep his promises to us. 
You know that. You've heard that before. Secondly, God has always been there and will always be there. God has always been there and will always be there. Notice he says, do you not know, have you not heard, verse 28, the everlasting God? Which means he isn't confined to time or to space. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. So we shouldn't panic if things aren't working out according to our time frame. Because God operates outside of time and he does things according to his timetable and a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And all we can say is, uh-oh, we're running out of time, God. We, you know we need that money by this time and, and, or you know I'm getting older and I'm not married yet or you know I'm, right, the, the things that, it's all on our timetable. I'm about to graduate and I don't have a job yet or, right, uh, God knows. He's always been there and he will always be there. Something else that you know, something else that you've heard is that God created and controls everything in the universe. God created and controls everything in the universe. That's not a light bulb statement, right? Wow. I never knew that. No, you know that. You know God made everything in the universe, that he sovereignly reigns over everything. There's nothing he doesn't know about it, and there's nothing he isn't in control of. He knows all about what is going on in your body right now. He knows what's going on in the heart and mind of your spouse right now. He knows what's going on in the hormones of your teenager right now. He knows what's going on in our country, in our world. He, he knows what will happen to you tomorrow and next month and next year. He knows all that. Ray Ortland is a, a helpful Bible teacher. He wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah that I really enjoyed he says this, quote, there is not a single square inch on this earth unknown to God or lying beyond the range of his presence. Anywhere life may take us, whether Babylonian exile or a lonely hotel room or an intensive care unit, God will already be there for us. We lie in his grace and power at all times everywhere. What a great truth. And so God loves us. He's faithful to keep his promises to us. He's always been there. He will always be there. He created and controls everything in the universe. And then another truth here that we've known, that we've heard, God is always hard at work and never gets tired. Unlike us, right? We're not always hard at work and uh, we get tired. We need nourishment. We need rest every day. We, we spend a third of our lives asleep. That seems like a big waste of time, doesn't it? Like, man, I, I wish I didn't have to sleep. I could get so much more accomplished. Why are we asleep a third of our lives? We're recouping our strength. And yet, even then, we eventually wear out and die. Not God. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never wears out. Why? Because he's omnipotent. He has limitless power. He's able to do anything. And again, Ortland comments, he says, in any given event in your life, 
He is actively accomplishing 10,000 things you aren't even aware of. Sometimes we think, well, yeah, I'm good at multitasking. It is kind of amazing when you think about it. Whenever I go to, to uh, like, uh, drive through a restaurant, you know, drive through fast food, and, 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 and somebody's on that little, I don't think I could do that. The, the person that takes your order, because they're like talking to three people and making change, and, and at the same time, like, whoa, that's, you're good. But it's amazing how God has gifted us to be able to multitask. Well, you may be a good multitasker, but you can't do 10,000 things all at the same time. God can. And he never grows tired or weary, but is forever fresh, always alert, always able. How about this truth that you know, that you've heard? God knows everything there is to know, and we don't. God knows everything there is to know, and, and we don't. Have you not? Do you not know? Have you not heard that? Of course you know that. Of course you've heard that. And this is a good reminder because at times life bewilders us. We can't begin to comprehend what, what God is up to, what he's thinking, what he's doing. He, his thoughts are, are higher than our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. It, I mean, there are times when, when we're able to trace God's sweet providence. We look back and go, wow, look at that. How cool is that? How he, how he did that? And then he did this. And then it, well, now it's just, the time, God's timing is perfect. And we just see him orchestrating things in a way that, that, that provides for us and protects us. And, but, but ultimately, we can never figure God out. Again, quoting from Orland. In his commentary on Isaiah, he says, if our lives are not exactly the way we would like them to be, we can be sure that they're precisely the way God wants them to be. Let me just read that again, because I think I might close in prayer after that, okay? Listen, if our lives are not exactly the way we would like them to be, we can be sure they are precisely the way God wants them to be. That's convicting because I think there's elements of all of our lives that we wish were different, right? We wish our lives were different. We would like them to, to, to not be the way they are. Well, they are exactly the way God wants them to be. He says, God knows what he's doing. We don't live by explanations. We live by promises. In other words, don't, ex don't expect God to give you an explanation. Hey, God, I'm, I'm waiting for an explanation here. I'm not getting this. I'm not understanding this. Well, you don't, you're not going to get an explanation, but you have a bunch of promises in, the, in God's word, amen, that he's already given us that we can go to. He says this, we don't figure God out by our brains. We submit to him by faith. We submit to him by faith. And so no situation is too difficult or complex for God. Our, our, big, our biggest problems in life, they're no big deal to God. Our worst fears are, are no threat to God. God wisely orchestrates each of our circumstances in such a way as, as to expose our ineptness and, and, and weakness so that we have no choice but to run to him. To get the help 
We need to compensate for our lack of wisdom, our lack of, of strength. He, he wants us to depend on him rather than ourselves. And so, listen to this. God purposely puts us in situations that are beyond our ability to handle in our own wisdom and strength. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, he's there waiting for us and say, what took you so long? You were trying to figure this thing out in your own wisdom, your own strength. I've just been waiting here. I got it all figured out. And I think that's the essence here when he says, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He knows everything there is to know. And we don't. And there's a reason for that, so that we would come to him. And then, and then lastly, what I think Isaiah was getting at in verses 29 and 30 is just the truth that God graciously grants us the power and strength that we need to handle any situation that he ordains for our lives. That's the context. God graciously grants us the power and strength that we need to handle any situation he ordains for us. Have you not, don't you know that? You know that. Have you not heard that? You heard that? Verse 29, even he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. I think what he's saying here is he's giving us a picture of human strength at its best. Use vigorous young men in the prime of their lives. Even those who are the youngest, the strongest, they still don't have enough strength to go without sleep, to go without rest. They inevitably will falter and fail. Thankfully, we're not solely dependent on our own strength. There's a power beyond ourselves that we can tap into. And when our strength is, is gone, we can draw the extra strength that we need from God who gladly and generously supplies us with strength enough to replenish us and rejuvenate our bodies physically and our souls spiritually so we can continue to endure whatever challenges or whatever adversities he's called us to go through. I think Paul is a, a great example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where Paul described this, this thorn in the flesh that God had ordained for his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself. In other words, he had, he had gone to heaven and back. He could have wrote a book. He could have gone on a speaking tour. He actually had gone to heaven and back. He lived to tell about it. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, these visions, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, in other words, to keep me humble, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Bible scholars over the centuries have debated what this thorn in the flesh was, this messenger of Satan, this angelos, some would say it was some physical ailment, his eyes, he had an eye condition. 
I think it's more likely in the context of 2 Corinthians where he was defending his ministry in the midst of false teachers that, that this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan was a false teacher uh, in the church of Corinth that was constantly um, undermining Paul's ministry and it was just like a thorn in his side. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Your power, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is perfected in our weakness. The weaker we are, the stronger God is. And the more obvious that it's God's strength in us, not our own strength. He gets all the glory. And so the supernatural energy that God provides us with enables us not just to survive our trials, but to thrive in the midst of them. Notice verse 31 back in Isaiah 40. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. The whole picture of an eagle here, rising above whatever has got us down to soar with eagle-like poise and strength through our suffering, to run through adversity, to stay faithful in our walk with the Lord despite the daily difficulties and problems and pressures and demands of life. You say, yeah, I want that to be me. How, how is that possible? I don't, I don't feel like an eagle right now. I feel like I'm just kind of dragging along here in life. I don't feel like I'm soaring at all. Well, what's the secret? Well, I already told you, it's there in verse 31. Yet those who what? You got it underlined, you got it bracketed, you got parentheses around it. Those who wait for the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, those who remain faithful to the Lord. That's a, a pregnant phrase, their wait for the Lord. Let me give you a, a definition of what it means to wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord is a quiet, patient, confident trust in God to take care of every detail of our lives that keeps us from worrying or complaining or taking matters into our own hands and keeps us believing in and hoping in the promises that God has made in his word to always provide for us and protect us in the best possible way. Hopefully you didn't try to write that down because you didn't get it, right? Let me just read it again. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? To wait for the Lord means to have a quiet, patient, confident trust in God to take care of every detail of our lives that keeps us from worrying or complaining or taking matters into our own hands and keeps us believing in and hoping in the promises that God has given us in his word to always provide for us and to protect us in the best possible way. And I don't need to tell you this, but you know that this is a theme throughout the Old Testament, this, this whole concept of waiting on the Lord. Listen to the psalmist who used the same phrase countless times. Psalm 27, verse 13. 
I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 33 Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 37, verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. In that same chapter, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Psalm 40, verses one through three, as the deer, excuse me, verse verse 40, I waited patiently, Psalm 40, verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How about Psalm 62? Psalm 62, verse one, my soul waits in silence for God only. For him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse five, my soul wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 130, Psalm 130, just want you to see that this is something that we are called to do. The psalmist models this for us. Psalm 130, verse five, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. Then I love what Jeremiah said in Lamentations as he was the one who actually saw the fulfillment of God's prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy in Babylonian. The Babylonians came in and destroyed uh, Jerusalem and there he was sitting lamenting on the ash heap that was now Jerusalem. And he's mourning Israel's sin and, and, and the punishment for their sin. And, and this is what he says in Lamentations chapter three, verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. And so there it is, the secret. Wait for the Lord. Now, I don't want anyone walking away thinking that To wait for the Lord means that you just sit around and do nothing. Oh, I I just got to sit and wait. I know how to do that. Just sit and wait. It's not just sitting around doing nothing. Waiting on God involves lots of things. Again, just taking what we just read from the Psalms and even in the book of Lamentations, waiting on God involves meditating on his attributes. 
believing in his promises, casting our fear and anxiety on him, knowing that he cares for us, seeking him with all our heart, longing for him like a deer panting for water, preferring or desiring him above anything or anything else on this earth, obeying his commands, striving to glorify and honor him in all that we say and do. That's all part of what it means to wait on the Lord. It's, it's a very active thing. Again, Ray Ortland said this, quote, waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. God gives us great and precious promises and then he calls us to wait. And Isaiah's point is that such bright expectancy is the mental leverage God uses to empower us. Remember I talked about earlier when you're out there running and you're feeling like, I can't do this anymore. I gotta stop, I gotta quit, I gotta sit down, I gotta rest, right? It's, it, a lot of it's mental. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to let God set the pace? Or are you such a controller you can't live on God's terms? Does your heart prize him as worth the wait? If so, your heart will be endlessly renewed until that great day. If not, you're on your own. And the point of this passage is you're not on your own, amen? You're not on your own. And if you feel like you are, it's probably because you're trying to do it in your own strength rather than striving according to his power that works mightily within all those who hope in him and trust in him and wait on him. Listen, life is exhausting. There's a reason for that. That's how God designed it to be in order to help us realize how much we need him. He never intended or expected any of us to live our lives in our own, uh, our own strength, but to rely on the strength that he provides us through Christ. Christ himself said what? Come to me, all who are what? Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, listen, all of you who are tired, you're worn out from trying to live life on your own, in your own strength, somehow earning God's favor by your own good works, come to me in faith, recognizing you don't have what it takes to live life or to be right with God in and of yourselves. You need me. And it's not just that I have what you lack, I am what you lack. And so let's not fall into the trap of thinking that we can find rest and renewal by taking some time off, which is helpful and we all need. But going on vacation and spending a week at the beach or in the mountains is not where you're gonna find true rest, true renewal. That only will happen when you get alone with God and behold his glory and majesty in his word and depend on him through prayer every moment of every day. Listen, you may be like the nation of Israel, like the nation of Judah here in this context in Isaiah 40, you may be in a very difficult spot in your life. And you're looking at the future and you go, man, we got a long, hard road ahead of us. It might be your marriage. It might be your finances. It may be a child, a wayward child. It may be something work-related or your health. You've, you've got a long, hard road ahead of you. 
Again, if you trust in yourself, you'll invariably, you'll feel frustrated. You'll get overwhelmed. But if you trust in God, he'll take care of you. He'll sustain you. He'll provide you with the physical and spiritual strength and stamina that you need for that long, hard road ahead of you. You guys know how much I love Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. Just another reminder, if you've not read that yet, go buy it today at the Resource Center and start it. This is what he said. You can trust God. He will never fail you nor forsake you. But can you trust God? To grow in your ability to trust God in times of adversity, he says you must first lay a solid foundation of a daily personal relationship with him. This is getting really fried. What are we talking about waiting on the Lord? Well, only as you know him intimately and seek to obey him completely will you be able to establish a trust relationship with God. And then to that foundation of a life lived in communion with God, we must add what we've learned about God, what we have known, what we have heard about his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love. And we must lay hold of these great truths in the little trials as well as the major calamities of life. Beloved, have you not known? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Behold your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that reminds us that you bring trials and difficulties and problems and pressures into our lives that oftentimes frustrate us and confuse us and exhaust us to bring us to the end of ourselves where we can find you. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we're entitled to always be happy and comfortable and have an easy trial-free life. Lord, help us to, to learn just to humbly admit we can't do life on our own. And we need to daily cry out to you and cling to you. Everything you've, you've said in your word about who you are, what you can do to provide us the, the help, the strength that we so desperately need. And Lord, I pray for anyone here specifically who, who, who may have come here today and, and they've lost perspective, which we all know now is really just losing sight of you, that you would be gracious to them today to remind them of all that they know, all that they've heard that is true about you so they can once again behold their God. Lord, we take, we take great hope in the promise of your word that the people who know their God shall be strong. And so thank you for giving us your word so that we could know you, so that we could be strong and live lives that bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.